take a moment to welcome all of our visitors, all of our guests, all of our long-time attenders, our members. Uh, wherever you are on your spiritual journey, if you've known Jesus for years upon years upon years, or if you've just started exploring this whole Christianity thing, I want you to feel welcome and comfortable here at Covenant Church. And my name is Ben Espinoza. I serve on staff here, and it's my privilege to kick off this sermon series that we're calling Real Jesus. We'll be exploring the unpredictable yet unchanging nature and personality of Jesus Christ. And let me tell you why we're doing this series. Because our culture is sick and tired of fake. We're sick of food that's made from fake ingredients. We're sick of fake movies not grounded in reality. We're desperately searching for something that's real, authentic, and true. And let's be real. The church has peddled a lot of fakeness when it comes to Jesus. Uh, Sometimes we'll think of Jesus as this person who never chose to offend anybody, who was tolerant of everybody. Sometimes we'll, we'll uh, conceptualize Jesus as this macho man who ate steak and took control of his life. But when we look at Scripture, we see a wholly, completely different picture of who Jesus really was during his time in ministry here on earth. And in about a month, we're going to have a very, very special Easter service where we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in preparation for that, we want to use this month to really explore what he had to say, to zero in on this unchanging, unpredictable nature that Jesus Christ had. You won't want to miss any sermons in this series. And this morning, I want to look at one characteristic that Jesus truly exemplified during his time here on earth, and it's the fact that he was scandalous. Now, Wikipedia, also known as the greatest invention in the history of humankind, defines a scandal as a widely publicized allegation or set of allegations that damages or tries to damage the reputation of an institution, individual, or creed. A scandal may be based on true or false allegations or a mixture of both. We see scandals all the time throughout our media. Politicians either having affairs or working some shady deals, corporate executives who like to to trade secrets on the inside, NFL teams that deflate footballs before big games, and dresses that appear white and gold when they're really blue and black. Okay? We see scandals like that all the time. And when we think of Jesus, we typically don't think of him as being the scandalous person. Yeah, he threw a table in the temple around every now and then. Sure, he pushes some people around, but for the most part, he's calm, he's gentle, he's tender, he's loving. But when you look at Scripture, you'll find that Jesus really upset the cultural order of his day. He was scandalous. And this morning, I want to look at a couple instances where Jesus and his scandalous nature were on display. And I want it to challenge us to be more scandalous, just in the way that Jesus was scandalous. So if you have your copy of God's Word, please turn with me to John chapter 4. And I want to give just a little bit of a a running commentary on this passage here, because I think the context says a little bit about a little more about the passage than the actual passage itself. So please read with me in God's word. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Remember that fact. It's very, very important. 
When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. And John gives us that little piece of commentary because he's writing to Greek people, uh, to, 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 yeah, to people. So he's giving a little bit of a running commentary here in the, in the text itself. The Samaritan woman said to Jesus, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Again, a little bit of a commentary from John. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you the living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you are now living with is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, that's a sign of respect. It's not any sort of, you know, not diminishing her role or anything. That's respect. It's like saying, madam. It's a very gentle term. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and his worshipers must worship him and the Spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ. The Greeks would have understood that term Christ. I know that he's coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Please pray with me. Dear Lord in heaven, I pray that you'll bless our time together. Please bless the reading of your word. I pray that you'll open our eyes and our minds and our hearts to the different things that you want to use to transform us, Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now we've all heard the story, the infamous story of the Samaritan woman. When I was a kid, my father was kind of a jokester. So whenever we'd read this, he'd always be like, Samaritan woman, stay away. Mm -mm." There's a reason Greg Jenkins always changes the subject whenever I say I want to sing on worship team. Now, when we look at the story, we, ch- we tend to think as the, of this as a straightforward interaction. Jesus gets thirsty. After all, he's 100% man. 
he happens to see a woman, he chats with her, and she ends up believing. Nothing terribly scandalous about this. This is normal to Jesus. We see Jesus doing this all throughout the Gospels. But when you start to dig into the context of this passage surrounding the story, it starts to become a little more than a simple water cooler conversation. You see, this story is scandalous on numerous different levels. Culturally, as I've mentioned before in previous sermons, Jews and Samaritans were natural-born enemies of one another. Samaritans were of mixed blood ancestry. They were part Jewish, part pagan, essentially. They worshipped the same God, Yahweh. However, they only believed that the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the books of Moses, were legitimate. And the biggest thing that separated Samaritans from the Jews was the fact that the Samaritans believed that the, the mountain that Abraham tried to sacrifice Isaac on in Genesis was Mount Gerizim, whereas the Jews believed it was Mount Zion. And biblical scholar D.A. Carson gives us a summary of this bad-blooded history between the two races. He writes this in a really good book he wrote called The Gospel According to John. He says, After the Assyrians captured Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, in 722 B.C., they deported all the Israelites of substance and settled the land with foreigners who intermarried with the surviving Israelites and adhered to some form of their ancient religion, as it says in 2 Kings. After the exile of the southern kingdom in Babylon, Jews, returning to their homeland, viewed the Samaritans not only as the children of political rebels, but as racial half-breeds whose religion was tainted by various unacceptable elements. About 400 B.C., the Samaritans erected a rival temple on Mount Gerizim. So this rivalry really is nothing like we've had in the United States. Sure, you could argue that the struggle for racial equality is kind of like this, but at the same time, it's not. It's not a, a Coke versus Pepsi. It's not McDonald's versus Burger King, Ohio State versus Michigan State. This is a blood rivalry based on religious and political disagreements. So for a Jew to even acknowledge the presence of a Samaritan, let alone talk to them, goes against the grain of Jewish culture of that day. And Jesus breaks this convention and he scandalizes it. Not only this, but the fact that Jesus was a Jewish man talking to a Samaritan woman was another no-no. See, back in those days, women were on the lower end of society. They were always under the authority of a man, either their husband or their father. They had little authority of their own, and they were always considered inferior to men. And they also couldn't testify in court because their witness was considered unreliable. And one scholar even notes that in the the social order of that society, women were just a notch above slaves. But time and time again, Jesus validates women. He encourages them. He teaches them. He disciples them. He accepts women into his inner, inner circle. And what's even more scandalous is that the first people to see him after he rose from the dead were women. Remember, their witness once was considered unreliable back in those days. So it was an honor for a woman to witness Jesus Christ after he was resurrected. It's as if God was saying, I see your social conventions, and I totally don't care about them. And the very fact that Jesus was a Jewish man speaking to a Samaritan woman, it breaks those two different social conventions. But not only this, this woman was an adulteress. She didn't have one husband, she had five, and she was living with a dude that wasn't even her husband. She was ashamed of it. And what scholars will point out 
is that women would not normally go and draw water during the heat of the day. They went when it was in the morning when it was a bit cooler, when it wasn't so hot, so they could gather water for their housekeeping chores throughout the day. So the question is, why was she there in the middle of the day? It's because she was a moral outcast, and she didn't want to be shunned by, uh, by her friends. She was an outcast. And in all societies, you don't associate with the local adulteress. All societies across the centuries. And Jesus Christ reached across every single cultural barrier that the world puts between him and this woman. And what does he do? He's gentle with her. He's kind. He's patient. He's trying to to get her to see her own need for himself. She found her worth and value and dignity in men. And she's deeply ashamed of it. But that doesn't deter Jesus from reaching out and sharing the good news of himself with this woman. Now, there's a lot more richness to the story that we could get into, but I want to move on, and I want to compare this story to a story in John chapter 3. So if you could turn with me to John chapter 3, I'll start in, in verse 1. Very fam- famous story right here. I'll do the same sort of social commentary that I did uh, b- before. John 3, 1. Now, there was a Pharisee. Remember, this is one of those quasi-religio-social-political leaders, greatly respected for their knowledge, wisdom, and power. There was a Pharisee named Nicodemus who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. So somebody of very high religious and political stature. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For for no one could perform the signs that you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Notice how Jesus says, hey, Nicodemus, nice to meet you. God loves you. No, he just gets right into business. Nicodemus asks, how can someone be born when they are old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You shouldn't be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell uh, where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you don't even understand these things? No one has gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So this guy, Nicodemus, he's of this high stature in the community of Israel, who is probably one of the Pharisees who was most empathetic with Jesus' message. He walks up to Jesus and says, yeah, you're, you're from God, I can tell. And Jesus tells him, you need to be born again. You're a teacher of Israel. You know the Hebrew Bible. You know your theology. Yet you're so wrong. Now, this is, this is the equivalent of you talking to the state attorney general who also has a Ph.D. in theology, who also has a degree in law, who has a whole host of pastoral and political experience, who's well-respected, well-liked, well-loved wherever he goes. This is the equivalent of you telling him that he's wrong on some crucial area of theology or law. 
And notice how terse and quick to the point Jesus is. It's not like, hey, hey, Jesus, Nicodemus, long time caller, long time listener, first time caller. Jesus doesn't say, hey, Nicodemus, uh, good to meet you. He's like, no, I'll tell you why you're wrong. And I'm going to answer that question that's been eating at your soul. And I'm going to tell you why you're wrong again. Now, notice the similarities between this story and the story of the, of the Samaritan woman. Jesus is preaching the same message to these people, but in different ways. To the Samaritan woman, he likens himself to living water, water that never ceases to quench and fulfill. To so Nicodemus, he says that he must be born again of the Spirit, that the Son of Man must die in order to give everyone life eternal. He's preaching the gospel to these people, but that's where the similarities stop. Notice how different the people with whom Jesus interacts really are. One is a social outcast in her village. She's a Samaritan woman adulteress. The other is a well-respected political and religious leader. With the Samaritan woman, Jesus is kind, he's gentle, he's compassionate, he's caring, he's engaging her in an interpersonal way. With Nicodemus, he's terse, he's blunt, he's insulting, he's breaking the rules of etiquette, basically. And in an interesting and usually kind of neglected uh, turn, it's Nicodemus who approaches Jesus. And it's Jesus who approaches this Samaritan woman. Back in those days, it would have been the other way around. Now, through some amazing archaeological discoveries, we've been able to uncover some of the social media that was going on around those days. And we've actually uncovered some tweets from about 2,000 years ago. I want to show these to you, okay? Yeah. Uh, Jacob Sychar, he he tweeted this. He said, Radical rabbi, Jesus caught talking to Samaritan adulteress. Hashtag no good. Hashtag stay away. Hashtag crazy. Second one from uh, Rabbi Joe says, Jesus insults Nicodemus, quote, you should know better, end quote. He should know better. Hashtag no respect. Hashtag no Jesus for me. Hashtag what good ever came from Bethlehem. And finally, this one from Lebanon John. Jesus of Nazareth, one big contradiction. Hashtag paradox. Hashtag who is he really? Now imagine all of, that's not real, guys. Twitter's been only, only been around for like five years, all right? So stop letting your imagination wander. Now imagine all the headlines. Imagine all the negative press that Jesus would receive. Imagine the 24-hour news cycle trying to discredit Jesus' message. Imagine the kind of scandal that would befall Jesus. Now let's take a step back and begin to think about how many things Jesus said and did that totally trashed man-made cultural barriers. Think about when he called the Pharisees and Sadducees a brood of vipers. Think about when he threw money changers out of the temple. Think about how he healed a Gentile's, the Roman centurion's servant. Think about how he never condemned the woman in adultery. Think about how he told the rich young ruler to sell everything he had. Think about how he called a bunch of unlearned fishermen to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And think about how he gave up his life in order to save people who didn't deserve it. What's scandalous to us is normal in God's economy. For all of us, it is easier to follow the winds of culture and conform to culture. But where the challenge comes is then we, when we come to know Jesus Christ and we become countercultural because the way that God sees things is often not how we see things. We see somebody who struggles with a particular sin. God sees them as a child that he desperately wants to connect with. We see someone who talks differently or acts differently or looks differently than us. 
God sees somebody he created in his own image. We decry how our culture has strayed from God, and we condemn everybody while we're at it, while God sees people on whom he wants to have liberal, unfailing, eternal compassion. And in the life of Jesus, we see him time and time again breaking cultural barriers, scandalizing almost every single situation in which he finds himself. And more than that, the fact that he goes to the cross to die for our sins is the most scandalous act of all. That the king of the universe, the ruler, the creator of the universe, would incarnate himself and become the perfect, innocent, sacrificial lamb for all of humanity. That's a scandal. Where is the justice in that? So what does this mean for us, practically speaking? I think a big part of it is that following Jesus will challenge us to view the world through the eyes of God. Now, some of you have probably seen this story, if we could just put that up there. Yeah, that dress. It's been all over the internet. If you're not familiar with this, like, here's the debate, okay? Some people, myself included, believe that this dress is actually white and gold. Other people believe that the dress is black and blue. And I showed this to a bunch of kids, and I, I think this is, this, is, uh, this is white and gold right here. I showed this to a bunch of kids, and every single one of them said black and blue, and I was going crazy. It's like, where, what's my perspective here? I, I, don't, I don't understand it. Now, it's interesting. If you talk to 100 people, you get a bunch of different answers, okay? But objectively, the dress is actually black and blue, and the reason we see different colors— is because of the way our eyes perceive different colors and lights and shapes and everything. But taking a step back, it doesn't matter how we see something or a particular situation. It doesn't matter how somebody else views something or any type of situation. All that matters is that we have the same perspective as God. And like I said before, what may be scandalous to us is normal for God. That's why it's so important that we keep our noses in God's word and practicing spiritual disciplines and being in Christian community because the more time that we involve ourselves in the things of God, the more and more we're conformed to his image and his likeness and his perspective. So following Jesus will challenge us to view the world through the eyes of God. Second component is that following Jesus will lead us to some pretty uncomfortable and scandalous places. The Christian life, it's, it's no cakewalk here. We talk about coming to know Jesus. We almost always talk about how amazing the Christian life will be. If you believe in Jesus, your life's going to be so much easier, so much more pleasant, and best yet, you get to live your life knowing that you get to go heaven and spend eternity with God the Father. It's great. But that's not the kind of thinking that we get in the life of Jesus. What we hear from Jesus is, if anyone wants to follow me, they must take up their cross and die. And throughout the gospel, we see Jesus saying the same thing to everyone who wants to be his disciple. To the rich young ruler who kept all the commandments, Jesus says, great, you can follow me if you go sell everything that you have. He doesn't. One man said, I want to follow you, Jesus, but I got to go have a party. I got to go bury my father. And Jesus says, you're not worthy of me. Following Jesus isn't easy. But if we genuinely choose to follow him with all of our being, being and sign our lives away, we're signing up for a life of self-denial, of self-sacrifice, potentially wrecking all of our relationships. Let me challenge you this week to reach out to someone who you normally wouldn't hang out with, 
whom it would be scandalous for you to hang out with. Let me challenge you to speak truth to a brother or sister in Christ when you normally wouldn't. Let me challenge you to do something, to step outside of your comfort zone and do something you know Jesus wants, but you've been refusing to give. So following Jesus will lead us to some pretty uncomfortable places. Finally, following Jesus will lead us to be bold witnesses for the kingdom of God. If you want a real lesson in what it looks like to follow Jesus, just read through the book of Acts. You see Peter and Paul, all the disciples, they're speaking out for the gospel, for truth, and in the midst of all this heavy and dire persecution, they're helping people. They're building God's church. I'd encourage you to read the stories of these disciples because many of them were martyred for taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. They were bold witnesses for the kingdom. They were never deterred from the mission that God had for them. So following Jesus will lead us to be bold, scandalous witnesses for the kingdom of God. And I want to leave you with the challenge here. What will you do with the real Jesus? Are you going to sit back and say, Lord, thanks for saving me. I'll see you, see you when I see you. Or are you going to live your life waking up every single morning saying, Lord, how can I follow you even if it hurts me the most? How can I be scandalous for you, Lord? How can I be someone that people trust and admire, but also be somebody that people hate because I'm living a life filled with you? What will you do with the real Jesus? C.S. Lewis, a great writer, he proposed the trilemma. With Jesus, he's either liar, lunatic, or Lord. To you, is he a liar? To you, is he a lunatic? Or to you, is he a Lord, the Lord? whom you're willing to follow and sacrifice all of it for, whom you are willing to potentially scandalize everything for. What will you do with the real, bold, scandalous Jesus that breaks man-made barriers in order to bring the gospel into broken, dark places? What will you do with him? Please stand with me as we pray. Dear Lord, I pray that you'll give us courage and strength to follow you even when it hurts, even when it's scandalous, even when it breaks our personal relationships, Lord. I pray that you'll give us strength and courage, diligence, persistence, Lord, in following you, keeping our eyes fixed on you through your word, through the people that you've blessed us with, Lord. I pray that this week you'll empower us and encourage us to reach out to people with whom we may never uh, have really reached out to before, Lord, whom need it, who are desperately in the need in need of your word, Lord. Pray that you'll empower us to be scandalous and be bold witnesses for your kingdom. Praise in Christ's name. Amen.